Their names are a byword for romance on the run. A fairy tale story of star-crossed outlaws who will ride together and die together. Bonnie and Clyde are American legends, a wild couple who outgun and outpace the cops. For a few short years, they capture public imagination with their high-octane life of crime that stops only for gas and ammo. Forged in the intense heat of the dusty Midwest and the Great Depression, molded by a brutal prison system, their car-crazy machine-gun crime spree can only ever end one way. But what's the truth behind their glamorous image? How did they become notorious celebrities in their own lifetime? This is Bonnie and Clyde, part three, The Final Ride. It's dawn on January 16th, 1934, Houston County, Texas. A pale winter's sun rises over the perimeter walls of East Ham Prison. A cold fog rolls thick off the Trinity River, creeping silently through the trees and blanketing the countryside. It muffles the throb of a Ford V8 engine idling on the isolated road. Behind the wheel, eyes glued to a clearing drifting in and out of the haze, sits Bonnie Parker. Below the clearing, on the bank of a creek that cuts across the road, lies Clyde Barrow, and another man named Mullins. A 48-year-old drug addict and unreliable, Bonnie does not like Mullins, but he's a means to an end. Three days ago, they had visited this same spot in the dead of night. On that occasion, Mullins had slipped through the perimeter fence and hidden two Colt 45 automatic pistols in a drainage ditch at the edge of the field. Their trap is set. Now, at the agreed time, they wait, watching the same field through the trees. After what seems like an eternity, straining her eyes, Bonnie eventually sees movement. In the clearing, ghostly shapes begin to appear out of the thick fog. Distant voices and the sound of tools drifts eerily in the still air as the morning work detail arrives. Bonnie tenses. This is it. Hidden from view, he shifts and picks up his browning machine gun. Suddenly, the crack of a gunshot rolls through the trees. Swaddled by fog but unmistakable, Bonnie looks at Clyde, who is kneeling, ready. Another gunshot echoes from the clearing. Clyde slowly stands, glancing back towards Bonnie in the car. He flashes her a quick smile before all hell breaks loose. He swings the Browning into the air and squeezes the trigger, releasing a volley from the machine gun, spraying bullets over the field. Prisoners and guards alike dive for cover in the dirt. Bonnie slams the palm of her hand down on the horn, the signal to move. Seconds later, several shapes swim out of the fog, running towards them towards the sound of the horn. Clyde fires again. Four men appear. Clyde signals to them and points towards the car. Bonnie recognizes a couple of the inmates, but the others are strangers. 
Bonnie leans on the horn again as Clyde reloads and fires. The four men make it to the car, panting in filthy, soaked prison overalls. Several gunshots from the confused guards finally come back in response, their bullets whizzing aimlessly into the mist. But Clyde is already running for the car, turning to fire one last burst as the men climb in. Bonnie shuffles over onto the passenger seat as Clyde throws her his rifle and jumps behind the wheel. Bonnie reloads, eyes on the tree line. Clyde guns the accelerator and the Ford roars off into the fog. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Last time on Real Outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde shot to notoriety thanks to sensational pictures and Bonnie's poetry printed in newspapers across America. They turned their crime spree into all-out war with the cops, blasting their way out of scrapes in a hail of gunfire and a cloud of tire smoke. But the heat took its toll. Now, with Clyde's brother Buck laying dead, Blanche and W.D. Jones arrested, the couple have only each other as they head off on their final thrilling ride. In January 1934, Clyde finally achieves his goal of a raid on East Ham Prison. He may not have sprung everyone he wanted to, but he has stabbed at the heart of the Texas Department of Corrections, the system that defined his life. And with the death of a hated prison guard, he has taken his personal revenge. Paul Schneider is a journalist and author of Bonnie and Clyde, The Lives Behind the Legend. Four prisoners managed to get to Clyde's car. And there's a couple there who weren't part of the deal. They just sort of saw what was going on and headed for it too. And Clyde's friend, the, the target of, of the jailbreak, says, you know, you can't come along. You're not breaking out with us. And Clyde says, no, anybody who gets here and gets in my car is coming with me. I'm not sending anybody back. One of the opportunistic escapees is a 22-year-old man from Louisiana called Henry Methvin. It's a chance meeting, but one that will prove fateful. Clyde Barrow's act of kindness will be their downfall. The raid on East Ham Prison is a tipping point. Ma Ferguson is the female governor of Texas. She demands more to be done to catch the couple. The Great Depression has forced cutbacks. In 1933, Ferguson had discharged the famous Texas Rangers, feared lawmen who patrolled the state for over a century. This and the general decline in organized law enforcement 
has led to Texas effectively becoming a safe haven for many public enemy-era gangsters, including Machine Gun Kelly and Pretty Boy Floyd. Until now, Ma Ferguson has been satisfied to leave the pursuit of Bonnie and Clyde to the regular police. But the prison raid is the last straw. Enter renowned former Texas Ranger Frank Hamer. Frank Hamer is a fascinating character for a lot of reasons. He gets brought into the story by the governor and the head of the prison system after the East Ham break. They are, as several other law enforcement people are, but they are now fully engaged in catching Bonnie and Clyde. Looking back from today at Frank Hamer with today's sensibilities, he is a conundrum of sorts. On the one hand, by his own admission, he was involved in shooting immigrants without a trial. It was just the way the border was handled by the Texas Rangers. They were a legendary law force, but it was the Old West. On the other hand, Hamer also pretty heroically tried to stop several horrific lynchings of black defendants at courthouses. So he has a sense of justice. It's a little bit malleable. The 49-year-old Frank Hamer comes with a fearsome reputation. He is the walking embodiment of the Texas Ranger, renowned for his marksmanship, tough demeanor, and investigative skills. He's been wounded 17 times and amassed over 53 confirmed kills on the record. Now Hamer has one task, to bring down Bonnie and Clyde. He gets brought in relatively late in the hunt for Bonnie and Clyde. And he is a legendary manhunter who has had many, many gunfights. Uh, so he's partly brought in because Clyde and his gang have shot up so many police and law enforcement and gotten out of so many scrapes that bringing in this angel of death character is hopefully going to prevent that kind of disaster from happening. What he brings to the investigation comes from his connection to the governor, which is he's the only law person chasing Bonnie and Clyde who really has it firmly in hand from the governor of the state of Texas to offer clemency or a pardon to anybody who will cooperate or who will rat out Bonnie and Clyde. Unfortunately for Hamer, no one will give up information on the couple. Either that or no one has anything important to share. Bonnie and Clyde don't stay in one place long enough to pin down. They're following their usual routine, driving across state lines, holding up stores for traveling cash. The cons, sprung in the jailbreak, have all dispersed into hiding, except one. Henry Methvin, the young opportunist who ran with the others in the prison break, is still riding with the couple. He's their new gopher. Clyde is using Methvin as a replacement for W.D. Jones, running errands and getting supplies for them. Through the spring of 1934, unknown to the outlaws, Frank Hamer tracks the trio like a shadow as they knock over banks and stores across the Midwest. He lives out of his car, never more than a town or a day behind them, always trying to figure out how he can get in front. Hamer's a manhunter. So, I mean, he is kind of out of some old West movie, even though he's not on a horse. He's in good communication with the FBI and with 
the sheriff's office of Dallas and, and the other people who are looking for him. So he has good information and he is following around behind him. But I think what he's what he's trying to figure out is not so much that he hopes to catch up with them on any of this and single-handedly bring them down. He's trying to figure out the pattern of where they travel. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. It's April 1st, 1934, just outside Grapevine, Texas. It's Easter Sunday, and the town is at peace. But there are at least two people in Grapevine who haven't been to church this morning. Bonnie Parker stands looking out over the fields, enjoying the warm spring sun on her face. She flicks ash from her cigar onto the ground and blows smoke into the still air, enjoying a moment of calm. She feels a twinge in her leg and shifts her weight. The pain is a constant reminder of the grim injury sustained a year ago and the reason she exclusively wears long pants now. Not far away sits their latest stolen Ford V8, a fine-looking automobile, a jet-black number with bright canary-yellow wheels. She looks beyond the car and tenses. Out on the main highway, beyond the dirt road, two motorbikes are slowing down. The distinctive white Harley-Davidsons of the Texas Highway Patrol. With the cigar clamped between her teeth, she limps back towards the car, dragging her right leg behind her. Bonnie taps on the car window. Inside, stretched out on the back seat, Clyde rubs his eyes and looks through the open door. He grabs his son-off shotgun, held down low, and slips out of the car. Bonnie reaches inside and grabs a pistol. The first cop stops his bike and turns off the ignition, leaning the kickstand down and swinging a leg off. He opens his mouth to speak, but doesn't get to say a word. Bonnie's pistol cracks twice. The man drops. The second cop backs away, fumbling with his rifle. Then, with a blast from Clyde's shotgun, flies backwards. Silence descends as smoke curls from the barrel of Bonnie's pistol. She takes a pull on the cigar, and she shuffles around the car, and takes Clyde's shotgun from him. The second cop lies spluttering face down, fingers clawing at the ground. Bonnie limps slowly towards him, her right foot dragging a line through the dirt. She stops, and with her good leg, kicks to turn him over. 
The dying cop rolls onto his back and looks up, terror in his eyes as Bonnie points the shotgun down at him. With the cigar still clamped firmly in her teeth, she grins maniacally and pulls the trigger. The shot echoes between the trees, sending a fresh wave of birds flapping from the branches. She takes the cigar from her mouth and laughs, flicking ash onto the body. Look at there, she says. His head bounced just like a rubber ball. The story of how Bonnie Parker callously shot and killed patrolman Ed Wheeler and rookie cop Holloway Murphy is printed in newspapers across the United States. Particular attention is given to Bonnie's malicious laugh, her wild grin, and the description of the officer's head bouncing like a rubber ball. A cigar butt found discarded nearby is said to bear the imprints of small teeth marks, proof positive of the cigar-munching mall's involvement. The playful pictures from the Joplin raid have come back to haunt her. But this grim story told by the press is not entirely true. The details come from a local farmer who claims to have witnessed the exchange. But his story changes several times, and later he admits he was looking for publicity and reward money. What happened on that spring morning is slightly different, though no less heartbreaking for the officers' families. For a start, the original account makes no mention of Henry Methvin's involvement, focusing purely on the infamous couple. In reality, when the two highway patrolmen approach the car, Clyde apparently utters, let's take him. Young Methvin, lying on the grass beside the car, doesn't waste a second. He blows away patrolman Wheeler with his browning rifle. Clyde claims he meant for them to kidnap the cops, but with the situation now beyond saving and with patrolman Murphy reaching for his weapon, Clyde himself guns down the second officer. In reality, Bonnie never leaves the car. I don't believe there's evidence of, you know, the gruesome way that it was depicted in Bonnie's participation of it. I don't think that was accurate. And so then you have to ask, well, why did the newspapers or the law, you know, whoever told the newspapers this version of stories, why did they? I th absolutely was an effort, I believe, on the part of the authorities in Dallas and elsewhere, but primarily in Dallas, to turn public opinion against Bonnie and Clyde. With the infamous Frank Hamer on the case and his remit and reputation as a manhunter, this new spin could be seen as a cynical ploy to aid his mission. Hamer knows that at the end of the day, the law will need help from the public to finally trap the elusive outlaws. And up to now, many still see Bonnie and Clyde as heroes. That needs to change, quick. The sensationalized version of the story also works for the newspaper publishers. Building on the infamous photos already circulating, they present Bonnie as the evil, cigar-toting, gun-wielding femme fatale. The newspapers were trying to sell newspapers. And so the story of some poor cop's head bouncing along the highway sells newspapers. So put it all together, it was definitely an effort on the part of law enforcement to paint them in the worst light. Although they shot two officers in cold blood, so it's not like, you know, there's not a good light that you can put that in. But I think making it appear as if Bonnie pulled the trigger, 
You know, Bonnie's what gave Clyde any sympathy that he had is that sort of Romeo and Juliet love story. So to, to whatever degree they could undermine that, they were all for it. Interestingly, the exaggerated newspaper accounts that emerge are also reflected, or perhaps foretold, in Bonnie's own poetry. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you have all read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate all the law, the stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. Clearly, the couple understood the roles they were being cast in, and perhaps they even played up to it. In any case, even in their own time, there seems to be a feedback loop between their actions and the news reports that forges a mythology right from the beginning. One thing about that poem is interesting because she wrote it, obviously, but she's the only one who calls them Bonnie and Clyde in their own time. Everybody else calls them Clyde and Bonnie. It's interesting that she knew the name was better, Bonnie and Clyde. Just as in her poems, the lurid tale of Bonnie and Clyde's cold-blooded murders does indeed make headlines, and the graphic news story has the desired effect of turning public opinion. It's another turning point for Bonnie and Clyde. Now reporters use the phrase Texas rat extermination as citizens raise a reward for their capture, dead or alive. The voices are added to by the highway patrol boss offering a $1,000 reward for the dead bodies of the grapevine cop slayers. He makes no mention of their capture, just the bodies. Governor Ma Ferguson adds to this with a reward of $500 for each of the two killers. The pressure is mounting. And it's the first time Bonnie has had a price on her head. I think public opinion also began to turn against them a little bit more in Dallas and in the Southwest. Not among their family so much, although their family is heartbroken at this point. Nobody's proud of where they are. I think they're being seen more and more not as rebels against a system, but as wounded, dangerous animals who are killers. Whatever their true motivations, the duo do themselves no favors when, just five days later, another gunfight breaks out. Another lawman is killed while the police chief is wounded and forced into the car. Driving around with Bonnie and Clyde, the chief brings up the grapevine killings. Bonnie expresses dismay at the way she's been painted by the papers and is at pains to tell people she doesn't even smoke cigars. After giving the chief a new shirt, they let him go. Luckily for him. Meanwhile, Frank Hamer has assembled a team and is now scouring the area a couple of hours drive south of Bonnie and Clyde. He knows he's closing in. One of the officers in his posse is a 29-year-old Texas deputy named Ted Hinton. Interestingly, you know, Hamer and the FBI, they have the pictures of Bonnie and Clyde, but that's not quite as good as actually being able to say, we know Bonnie and Clyde, and they don't want to shoot up the wrong car. And Hinton knew them as kids. I mean, Hinton grew up in the same milieu. So Hinton knew all these guys, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, maybe had a little crush on Bonnie. With Hinton able to provide a positive ID, 
the team scrambles to interview the kidnapped police chief. Hamer needs to find out all they can about Bonnie and Clyde and their movements. More stories hit the papers, and whatever popular support the couple may have enjoyed disintegrates entirely. The Dallas Journal runs a cartoon picture of Old Sparky, the Texas State's electric chair. Alongside is a reserved sign and the names Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Hamer spots something that will help bring the couple down. He's trying to figure out the pattern of where they travel. And he often gets the most credit for their capture, and maybe rightly so. The FBI are more kind of forensic, going in and searching places and writing down every piece of lipstick or whatever they find. But between them, they do begin to understand that Bonnie and Clyde are kind of traveling in a sort of a loop and that they're going to come back through certain places at certain times. Clyde is consistent looping around states, exploiting the rules that police cannot follow across borders. Despite only having authority in Texas, Hamer has no such reservations. He tracks them to Louisiana. Clyde and Bonnie have started coming to this corner of Louisiana pretty often. Clyde probably, maybe, bought Henry Medfin's father a better farm that was more secluded so that he would have a place that they could come to. At any rate, the Medfins seem to have come into a little more money suddenly, which is what actually partly put them on the map for the FBI and the law. Their neighbors were curious about, you know, how did, how did they suddenly get to buy a better farm? It's not proven that Clyde bought it, but that's part of the rumor. The farm is just the sort of strategically positioned place that Clyde likes. Nestled in the backwoods, not far from both the Texas and Arkansas borders, it's the perfect hideout. Clyde begins to come there pretty regularly and talks about even buying a place there for his own family. So the corner up near Shreveport where this all takes place has gotten to be on their route and on the map of the law who are seeking them. Hamer and the local police chief, Sheriff Jordan, check the place out. It's a risky place for a raid. On familiar turf, the outlaws' heavy weaponry could easily swing another shootout. Instead, they plot another way to bring down the couple. They know Bonnie and Clyde will go down together, but suspect their gopher, Henry Methven, could be the weak link. While the law has been on the trail for a while, Hamer has the magic document that can provide the final nail in the killer's coffins. He had the pardon in his pocket to offer to whomever it was that might be able to put Bonnie and Clyde on the spot, as they'd say. But it is not correct to suggest that he finally caught them on his own with somehow through his superior sleuthing or his better skills as a manhunter. Really, the FBI and the Dallas Sheriff's Department were closing in, closing in, closing in, and Hamer just had the piece of paper that he could offer to the Methvins. The inevitable, furious, and bloody end is coming up fast for Bonnie and Clyde. They know it, the law knows it, the whole of Texas knows it. Henry Methvin's father, Ivy Methvin, is concerned his son will be caught up in the crossfire. He agrees to help Hamer and Sheriff Jordan in return for a pardon for his son. A plan is hatched. They agree that Henry will find a way to get himself separated from Bonnie and Clyde which will set in motion a fatal chain of events. 
Hamer will be ready the next time Bonnie and Clyde roll into town. So they go into Shreveport, which isn't far away, and Henry gets out to get some sandwiches at a cafe there while Bonnie and Clyde are driving around the block. But instead of picking up the sandwiches while Bonnie and Clyde are driving around the block, Henry leaves the sandwiches on the counter and just sneaks out and disappears into the crowd. Bonnie and Clyde are not necessarily suspicious that Henry got separated because they're all on the run from the law. They probably think, oh, some cop looked at him sideways and he had to disappear. So, but the agreement always is, if we get separated, we'll come back and find you at your house. Make your way back to your house. And so, on one spring afternoon in late May, Bonnie and Clyde head south to the Methvin family farm to rendezvous with Henry. Little do they know, it's a date with destiny they're headed for. The posse knows that Bonnie and Clyde will eventually come down this road to this home of Henry Medfins, looking to pick Henry back up because they don't want to be on the road alone. They can't, bond, neither bond, Bonnie can barely walk at this point. Clyde's all shot up. They need somebody to go in and pick up the sandwiches and they need help. So they're going to come back for Henry. And the word goes out that this is going to happen. It's 9 a.m. on Wednesday, May 23rd, 1934. The morning air is warm and still, heavy with the sounds of insects and birdsong. Cutting a dark slash through the dense trees runs Highway 154. The isolated stretch of road in northern Louisiana has been chosen well. Hidden in the undergrowth, close to the roadside, are six men. Frank Hamer and his five-man posse have been here for over 24 hours. They know at some point the two outlaws will travel along this road en route to the Methvin farm a couple of miles further down. Hamer knows his prey well. Each man carries a high-powered rifle and a pistol with the exception of Hinton, who is holding a Browning automatic machine gun, just like Clyde himself uses. He knows Clyde will be driving at full throttle, he estimates the car will be doing over 60 miles an hour as it passes, so he has planned a way to slow the speeding Ford. To secure a pardon for his son Henry, Ivy Methvin has been coerced by Hamer into playing a role. On the other side of the road sits his truck, jacked up. The men are tired and irritable. Ivy Methvin's head jerks nervously at every sound. He starts to put his wheel back on, but is stopped by Hamer. The men are about to give up, but then there's a sound in the distance, the distinctive howl of a Ford V8 being driven at high speed. The men tense, rifles click as bolts are cocked. Ivy looks at the posse, then at the trees. He's desperate to get away. The engine note rises until suddenly the tan Ford tears around the corner in a cloud of dust. Clyde is driving like a man possessed, foot to the floor. Then he sees the truck, recognizing it as Methvin's. He brakes, slowing to a crawl. Ivy looks round, white as a ghost, and steps back behind his truck. The couple in the car have no time to wonder what is happening. A single gunshot rings out. 
One man has stood early and fired his rifle at close range straight into the side of Clyde's head, killing him instantly. Bonnie screams as her partner in crime slumps across the seat. The rest of the posse stand and pull their triggers. A torrent of lead blasts the stricken Ford, punching holes clean through the bodywork, straight into Clyde's corpse and the still screaming Bonnie. After several seconds, the screaming stops, but the onslaught does not. The thunderous barrage of gunfire is heard miles away. When the magazines click empty, the men pull their pistols and continue to pour lead into the car. The Ford, its doors and side panels reduced to Swiss cheese, begins to roll away towards the side of the road. Still, the fusillade of bullets continues. The men have no intention of letting anyone inside survive. Finally, the noise stops. A deathly silence settles over the scene. The only sound is the spring breeze gently rustling the trees. A haze follows the slowly rolling car. The smell of burning cordite fills the air. Frank Hamer walks from the bushes, his 38 detective special held aloft as he strides forward. The occupants are clearly dead. There is no way anyone could have survived. He reaches through the smashed window and turns the ignition off. Bonnie's hand drops to the seat. She is still clutching a bologna sandwich. Plenty of other people had tried to outshoot Bonnie and Clyde and not succeeded. Understandably, because Bonnie and Clyde had shot their way out of so many situations, the lawman who ambushed them took no chances. I mean, they put as many bullets into that car in as short amount of time as they could. Investigators later estimate that the six men pumped over 150 bullets into the car and the two occupants. Though it was the first shot from the Remington Model 8 rifle of Deputy Prentice Oakley, which ended Clyde Barrow's short life. Hamer collects evidence. Guns are pulled from the wreckage. A mobile armory that includes Clyde's famed BARs. Fifteen sets of license plates are found in the trunk for switching in an escape. And they find Clyde's saxophone in the car. I mean, he's running from the law for all these years and shot to hell. He's lost his brother. He's lost every, you know, but he's still got this saxophone that he plays. The couple's bodies are left in the bullet-ridden car while Hamer and three of the team head into town to fetch a tow truck. When Hamer returns, he finds a circus, as the two men left to guard the site have been overrun by a mob intent on collecting bloody souvenirs. So Bonnie and Clyde are lying there, dead, shot, all up to pieces, really, shot shot to pieces. And this crowd begins to gather, their belongings are around, and the police are filming it. There's not enough police presence there to create a kind of, you know, the yellow tape and whatever. So people do begin to, like, take things. One man is attacking the trees with a knife to prize out bullets while another is caught attempting to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. Still more claw at the car, pulling anything loose. Bullets, scraps, clothing, 
even tufts of Bonnie's blood-soaked hair. By the time the car is towed into nearby Arcadia, over 10,000 people are lining the streets, straining to get a glimpse of Bonnie and Clyde and their last ride. Press and gawkers flood into the bus and railway stations. Crowds surge to take photographs. The people at the front claw at the Ford to rip off grim mementos. It's kind of premonition, I guess, of the way that Bonnie and Clyde, who were, in the end, relatively unsuccessful bank robbers, you know, and kind of regional celebrities have grown into this huge, mythical, kind of gruesome touchstone of American culture. Clyde's funeral is held in a mansion in downtown Dallas with almost 15,000 onlookers. At sunset on Friday the 25th of May, a second private service is held with the family. He is buried in the same plot as his beloved older brother, Buck. His mother, Kimmy, had held out ordering Buck's headstone, knowing Clyde wouldn't be far behind. She now gets a simple headstone engraved with her son's chosen words, gone but not forgotten. The following afternoon, Bonnie's funeral is held in Dallas's Fish Trap Cemetery, it had been her wish to be buried with Clyde, but her mother will not allow it. She says, he had her in life, he wouldn't have her in death. Tributes flood in, but the biggest is a collective wreath from a group of Dallas newsboys, a macabre show of gratitude for helping them sell newspapers. The blood-stained and bullet-ridden Ford V8, known as the Death Car, is carted around country fairs for a while, but gradually, interest in the couple wanes. Soon, despite the epitaph on Clyde's grave, they are forgotten. That is, until 1967, a biopic movie is released starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Blanche Barrow is consulted by Beatty during filming. And although the actor portraying her wins an Oscar for the role, Blanche complains, that movie made me look like a screaming horse's ass. W.D. Jones sees out the rest of his years on the right side of the law, living near his mother in Houston. Like Blanche, he lives long enough to see the 1967 Bonnie and Clyde film. He later says, it made it all look sort of glamorous, but like I told them teenaged boys sitting near me at the drive-in showing, Take it from an old man who was there. It was hell. One cannot underestimate the importance of the movie Bonnie and Clyde in the late 60s. I think that while the myth-making started almost immediately by Bonnie's mother and Clyde's sister, who wrote a book not long after, and it really, that movie was such a hit and touched so many hot spots of American culture that I think there's a very clear line of when their level of celebrity kicks into this mythical gear, and it's 40 years after they're dead. The film's graphic sex and violence breaks taboos at the time and appeals to late 60s counterculture. Its anti-establishment themes resonate at the height of the Vietnam War, and the film wins two Oscars and a BAFTA. It's thanks to the movie that Bonnie and Clyde are recast as American folk heroes, 
But it's Bonnie's image and her poetry and their love for each other that raises them above contemporaries and really cements them into modern public imagination. I don't know, as a general sense, why we need these kind of outlaw heroes. But I think in the case of Bonnie and Clyde, they really do resonate, regardless of your political spectrum today or at any time. While it's true they did break out of a cycle of poverty and spat in the eye of an uncaring establishment, the cost was high. They were cold-blooded killers, unafraid to shoot first when backed into a corner. Their brief crime spree was an unglamorous, dirty, uncomfortable life, constantly moving, living hand-to-mouth, punctuated by a few brutal shootouts, escapes, murders, and bungled robberies. Despite this, they became some of the first big outlaw media stars of the 20th century, with a legacy that will live on. It's easy to fall in love with the romantic image of Bonnie and Clyde, the two star-crossed killers on the run who ultimately went down together in a blaze of glory. It's just as easy to denounce the Stone Cold Killers, who left a trail of bodies, widows, and orphans in their wake. They also kind of live at this weird intersection of anti-establishment and law and order. So there's a very political divide, but it doesn't follow obvious current political lines. There's people who will just say, oh, Bonnie and Clyde, they were just ruthless killers. And then there's others who are more about how they defy the law, you know, live free or die. I think that their enduring appeal stems from that, the tragic romance. That's, you know, you always want to balance tragedy using the word tragic with the number of people they killed because obviously those lawmen had families. The truth is, Bonnie and Clyde were victims of their era, forged in the Great Depression and hardened by the brutal prison system in an ever-increasing spiral of violence that was only ever going to end one way. And they knew exactly how that would be. Just weeks before that fateful morning in Louisiana, Bonnie gave her mother a handwritten poem. The story of Bonnie and Clyde was prophetic and could almost have been written as their own epitaphs. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together and they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. 